The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. been studying the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, a section of Scripture well worth studying. This is not the first time we've ever been through it as a congregation in my time with you. It will take us, I estimate, probably into July to cover the entirety of Matthew 5 through 7. We'll break next Sunday for Palm Sunday and Easter and then return. Where we were in chapter 5 last time, we heard Jesus begin to point to a number of specific case examples of how people heard the law in ancient time, but they thought it only applied to the outward act. If they didn't murder someone, then they didn't have to worry about that. But Jesus said, if you've been brutally angry with someone, you have murdered them. And along that line now, we continue with the text that I'll tell you the truth, preachers would be happy not to preach on, but that's the value of consecutive Bible exposition. You, f- you face the text you don't want to preach on but need to. So listen to what he has to say. This is our Lord Jesus himself speaking. Matthew 5, verse 27 and following. You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body goes into hell. This is God's Word, entirely true, infallible, inerrant, given to change our lives by the power of what He has spoken. I feel very safe in saying that never in the history of Western society has marriage and sexual relationships been so utterly confused and damaging as they are today. Even in good old conservative Lancaster County, PA, did you know that 40% of all births of babies are born, what we would say, out of wedlock? A mother and father who are not married? Nearly half of all couples are living together before they are married, if they are ever married. And we hear of powerful leaders day to day in the news, the newspapers, the TV, tell us of those with power in corporations or in the media or in Hollywood or in government who are brought low by acts of sexual abuse. 
And all the while, the quiet epidemic, pornography, is freely available to any child with a computer without parental control. Human sexuality is God's wonderful gift. But it's a gift to a man and a woman created in His image, and its place is within the sanctity of a husband and wife, having taken faithful vows to one another for life. Anywhere else, it is not God's gift, and it will not be blessed. The same intimacy with anyone else outside of marriage, the Bible calls fornication in the case of a single person, or adultery in the case of a married person. Romans 1 diagnoses so wonderfully and clearly and undeniably that humanity's rebellion against God, our whole sinful condition, shows itself first and foremost in perverted sexual practice. Romans 1.24 says, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts and the degrading of their bodies with one another. Believers in Christ who want to go against this tidal wave of sin in our society feel most of the time as if they're swimming heavily upstream and are even scorned or looked upon as foolish and naive. Society scorns the Bible's ideal of sex within marriage as being quaint, unrealistic, if not just plain stupid. Is it possible to recover for ourselves and especially for our children, the next generation, the God-given beauty and sanctity of sexuality expressed within marriage where God intended it to be? I worry about my grandchildren. You should too. In Matthew 5, we have already heard last time Jesus indicting the way sin violates not only the outward letter of God's law, the action that you take, but he said that the smoldering anger of your heart could be equated to murder because it may lead to that, and there's a direct line between the two. And now in another example in Matthew 5:27 and following, Jesus talks about the secret lust that is the birthplace of adultery. Lust, he said, seeks to master or dominate another human being. It treats that other person, if it even knows that other person, or has a live encounter with that other person, which is not necessary, as a secret source of pleasure that is not rightfully yours to enjoy. And it destroys human dignity like a raging fire. Now, Jesus didn't just shake his finger or lecture and say, bad, 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 about sex outside of marriage. He told us something to do about it. He spoke with practicality and with grace, but with real vehemence. And I'd like us to examine what it is he has to say and how it might apply even to you today. First of all, three things are here, three Ds. He asks us to diagnose your own mind, detach your eyes, and determine to value eternal joy ahead of immediate pleasure. First of all, he says, diagnose your own mind and heart on this subject. Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully 
has already committed adultery in his heart. Jesus casts it, of course, in the masculine pronoun, and it is probably a male problem more than a female problem. But I'm sure he, with all knowledge, understood that women also can commit adultery with their eyes and have them dwelling on wrong things. And women also use pornography, I understand. God made us sexual beings. And that's part of the wonderful part of us. Something absolutely wonderful, not just to propagate the race with children, but for a husband and a wife to find joy at the very heart of their companionship. There's a whole biblical book that we preachers kind of leave alone, I guess you've noticed. It's called The Song of Solomon. Kind of an embarrassing book to preach on, frankly, because it's all about marital love and the delights of that love for a husband and a wife, as Solomon was gifted to write from God. But the point is, every good gift of the Lord is capable of being twisted and misused. Our church administrator had a trip a month or so ago, I guess it was around Christmas time, went over to Italy, and one of the things Michael, being a car guy, wanted to do was to drive a Lamborghini. You can do this. There's a fee, of course, and I'm sure a pretty high insurance policy has to be maintained because Lamborghinis, I understand, cost about a quarter of a million dollars. But Michael came back all aglow having driven the Lamborghini. He hasn't come down off that mountaintop yet. Now, what if he didn't do it, but what if he had smashed that car and $250,000 worth of car was a, a tangled wreck of scrap metal smoking and ablaze? Ooh, I hope they have an insurance policy for that. The point is, God's beautiful, good, supreme gifts can end up that way, like smoking wreckage at the side of a highway. Romans says that's what happens. It's one of the first places our sin shows up and brings terrible consequences. C.S. Lewis had an interesting uh, little quote about this. I hope you understand he was writing this tongue-in-cheek in mockery, trying to make a point. Lewis said, suppose there was another country where you would visit and you would go to a program in a large theater and you found it was filled entirely with men. And as you sat down with all these other men, you looked on the stage and there was a small table. And on the table was a large serving platter. And on the platter was a big lump. You weren't sure quite what it was because it was covered with a cloth. And then the show proceeded as you sat and watched, and a man came and seductively and slowly drew back the cloth from off what you saw was a huge roast, sirloin roast of beef. And the audience, as the beef was exhibited, slowly and carefully howled and whistled, and obviously were getting great enjoyment out of this meat striptease. Would you not think that something had gone very wrong in that country with that kind of an attitude towards food? Well, Lewis wanted you to know he was making fun, of course. And yet, when you stop and think about what he was saying, he certainly has a point. What is wrong with people? 
who react to the exposure of flesh in such a way. Jesus said adultery begins in the eye and the imagination. It begins with a particular look that a man gives a woman, or I'm sure a woman could give a man. You see the person in a particular way, and instead of just, oh, okay, there's a woman I haven't met before, and your eye moves on to other sites or other people in the room and just normally scans the crowd. But in this case, there's a different look. It's not just the look that sees and moves on. It's the look that stays and stares and hungrily begins to want to possess that person with deeds of shame that are not yours to enjoy, but your obsessive fantasy begins to say, oh, how I wish it was mine. Well, we have to diagnose our own hearts and minds to know that all of us have this propensity. There's no one excused from this. Certainly, bigger problem for some than others. But we need to diagnose and know that our mind and our heart are liable to go in this direction. And after we diagnose it, then we need to hear what Jesus is saying when he says, well, what you must immediately do then is detach your eye from the problem. And he says it in such a powerful, drastic way that it's hard for us to almost believe that he said this. If your right eye offends you, pluck it out. We say, what? Jesus, do you want me to understand that literally? Well, there actually were people in various ages of church history who did in some manner decide it should be obeyed literally, and they mutilated their bodies. Monks in monasteries used whips on their own flesh to somehow put down the desires of the flesh. There were monks who castrated themselves, thinking they were obeying a command of Jesus. I don't think any of us would understand he was telling us to literally perform eye surgery and remove an eye. But he was getting our attention with a drastic statement that we would understand that drastic action is required here. It is a sad thing to observe the way in which the Church of Rome has demanded over the many centuries that priests, its priests be celibate, citing somehow that this is a spiritual principle. Unfortunately, it's nowhere derived from the Bible. It is not a biblical idea. And you can see how in the disasters it has wrought and sexual abuse within the Church of Rome that it is not only a bad idea, but it's an ungodly idea. It has nothing to do with Scripture. But Jesus is saying here in Matthew 5, that drastic and immediate countermeasures are necessary if lust is not going to take root and grow and infect the entirety of your soul and your spirit and your mind. It won't be defeated by you handling it with kid gloves saying, oh, I've got a little bit of a problem here. You don't have a little bit of a problem. You have a huge problem. You have a life-destroying problem. Romans 12.1 says that we as Christian disciples are to present our bodies, our actions, the way we think, what we dwell on, what we long for as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service. Well, you say, what do you have in mind then? How do I go about detaching my eyes? Well, there's a good example in a very old book of the Bible showing you that this problem has been around a long time. Job 
has a little section where he talks about this among his other difficulties. Job was kind of in a defensive posture. You know that others were hitting on him saying, come on, Job, you've got to confess what you've done wrong. And Job said, I haven't knowledgeably done anything wrong. I don't know what you're talking about. In Job 31.1, he makes a comment that goes off to the side a little bit. And he says, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. He's talking about exactly what Jesus was talking about. A covenant with my eyes. I have, before God, he was saying, signed a, a, a contract to say I will not let that lingering look of lust be active in me. I will move away from it with every power I have. And he admitted that God would be right in judging him if he didn't do this. Job didn't just sit there and say, oh, woe is me. I'm a man. I have a problem with lust. He said, I have entered into a contract in the presence of God to ask by his divine enablement to turn my eyes aside when they're gazing where they should not. I believe we could say Job was announcing, I have prayed, Lord, I need your strength to do this. Only as I contract with you will I be able to do this. It's not within my own power. Plucking out your eye is about consciously redirecting your attention. The New Testament calls it mortification, putting to death that which is unprofitable for you, recognizing it as a weakness, confessing it to God, determining to ask God's strength to say, as soon as this starts, as soon as this takes any kind of root, I will pull it out by the strength of God working in me. Paul said in Romans 8.13, if you live by the sinful nature, that is directed by and empowered by the sinful nature, you will die. Spiritual death is the result of following the, the sinful nature. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. The key is by the Spirit. By the controlling power of God, the Holy Spirit, living in a Christian believer. You're not alone in this. You have a power from God if you will ask him to put it to work and put it to be applied at the point of your great need as soon as you're aware of it. Lord, help me. Here's here's the kind of temptation that I have the hard time with. Help me, Lord. Kill this thought before it has a chance to settle down and root itself in my life and start controlling me. What do you do in order to put out a fire? If lust is a fire, Carol and I drove by on Lidditz Pike, the site of the bakery fire earlier this week in Lidditz. Wow, there's nothing left. A whole building is just gone and a pile of scrap metals there. Well, if you're going to put out a fire, you have to deny it fuel. You don't put the fuel closer to the flame. You don't take your five-gallon can of lawnmower gasoline and say, hey, I'll put my gasoline in the basement for the winter, and I guess it'll fit right here alongside the furnace. Not a good idea if you want a house to last through the winter. Men or women, when you find yourself looking at a first instance of that look that dwells and tries to take possession, whether it's a live person or whether it's something, uh, an internet pornography as is so prevalent today, the first page 
is the place where you have to say, oh God, I don't belong here. Give me the strength to shut this off and not come back. Because if you're into the second and the third and the tenth page, your lust has taken root. Job says he created this practical accountability to counteract his weakness. What would that look like in in a modern day? Since the computer is a fairly big center of a lot of this, you know, men, I'll tell you something you could do that would probably cause your wife to rise greatly in esteem for you. Maybe this isn't even a big problem for you, but, but you could say to her, even riding home today, you know what? I have to be able to admit to you, honey, that I certainly have once or twice gone to one of those sites on the computer. I'm not proud of that, but here's what I want to do. I give you permission. In fact, I urge you to go frequently to the web browser history, and if she doesn't know where that is, you show her. She probably does know. Go there to that history that will tell you where I've been on the computer and go there as often as you want and don't tell me in advance when you're going to do it. Would you, as a man with that kind of problem, have the boldness to say that to your wife? Would you, as a 15 or 17 or 19-year-old youth still at home, be able to... You want to know how to shock your parents, guys? Listen to me. Go to mom and dad and say, Mom and Dad, the pastor was talking about something I've struggled with today. I want you to know that I would like you to check the web browser history on the computer that you bought me that runs on the electricity in your home where you provide me a place to live. I would like you to check that web browser as often as you want. Hold me accountable. If my son ever said that, I'd probably fall over. Not that I had sons who had big problems in this area. I'm not trying to say that. But what are you saying? You're saying, I'm a person of integrity. I don't have anything to hide. Here, I need you to be my accountability partner. There are ways within this church you can talk to any pastor and become part of one of several groups of men who meet, who have covenanted together to confess their weakness and hold each other responsible. There's things like the program called Covenant Eyes that I understand sends a message to your covenant partner who has admitted the same weakness and says, your friend George has wandered with his computer voyaging. You ought to get in touch with him. He's going places he shouldn't go. You see, these are all part of plucking out your eye. They're all part of the radical measures to remedy lust. It's not, a, it's not a cautious remedy. It's a decisive amputation. It's a desperate disease, and it needs a desperate cure, gentlemen. Social media, don't get me started. We have dealt with, in immediate ways in this church, social media becoming the beginning of flirtations and then relationships and then root and branch growing to disrupt a marriage because somebody was at the computer at 1 o'clock in the morning when the spouse was asleep. 1 Thessalonians 5.22 speaks about Christians avoiding even the appearance of evil. The pastors in our Thursday meeting were talking about this not long ago. 
the fact that you don't even have to be necessarily doing something wrong if you're perceived by others as doing something wrong. And in this vein, I want to praise our current vice president, Mike Pence. A short time ago, I don't even know the exact context of this, but somewhere Mike Pence commented that he follows the practice, which is a well-known practice followed by the Reverend Billy Graham, the late Dr. Graham, who had an ironclad ministry rule that he never had a lunch or a meeting with a woman other than his wife without a third person present. I read that 40 years ago when I was a seminary student, and I said, that's a good practice. I'm going to do that. I'm not going to give anyone the ability to even have a shadow of suspicion that there was something wrong going on. And I followed that rule. I am not holding myself up as a paragon of virtue here, but I'm saying there are rules you can follow. There are ways you can regulate yourself so that there won't be even a whiff or a suspicion or an opportunity for you to step off where you should not be. I'm not particularly strong in sustaining that for 40-plus years of ministry, but I have done it because, for a specific reason, because I'm not trusting myself. And I want the world to know I don't trust myself. And there in that distrust of my own flesh, I find the mercy of God leading me into habits and habits that become character. Then when all else fails, listen, how else can you detach yourself? Well, there's one four-letter word you can remember. It's spelled F-L-E-E. Do you remember Joseph in the Old Testament, a man of whom nothing negative is ever said? Joseph and Daniel are the only individuals in the Bible uh, with extensive biographies of whom nothing very negative is ever said. Joseph ran from Potiphar's seductive wife. She wasn't even named. Apparently, she was very attractive. She was very willing and very available, and she made it known. Genesis 39 tells the story. Joseph fled from the woman as if she was offering him a lunch laced with Ebola virus. I'm out of here. I dare not go there with what you're inviting. And he fled. A final thing. If we've learned to detach our eyes, we need in in the final place to determine to put eternity's joy before any momentary pleasure. Christ our Lord said in this passage, it is better for you to lose a part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. I was mentioning Joseph. Genesis 39.9 shows that he had such high regard for the eye of God on him that here's what he said to Mrs. Potiphar, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? He was not dwelling on the pleasure he could derive for a moment. Probably wouldn't have been found out because the lady was certainly willing to cooperate. But he said, wait a minute, we're not the only parties in this. God's eye is upon me. I can't do that to my God whom I must honor. And Joseph was telling us that our secret thoughts as well as our actions are open to the gaze of God. And we don't simply think about him as a grim judge who's going to bring the hatchet down on us at eternal judgment day. But he's our father who would be deeply disappointed if we turned from him 
and dishonored him in that way. And he's our Father who would compassionately understand if we got ensnared in that kind of thing, but if we would just remember that he would meet us there and compassionately forgive us when we confess our weakness and ask for his forgiveness, there would be blessing and the joy of eternity, not the degradation of a life full of secrets and shame. Jesus didn't tell us here that that God can't forgive a single act of lust or many acts of lust, but he clearly implies if it is your habit to say, all right, well, I recognize that I have that problem, but God will always forgive me. I can't conquer it, so next time it happens, I'll just say, forgive me, God, and then the next time I'll say, forgive me, God, and the next time I'll say, forgive me, God, you'll wear it out because the forgiveness and the request for it will become meaningless. And there'll come a point probably where you'll no longer be asking for it. Martin Luther said something I have quoted to you numerous times. It's one of the most pungent sayings of Luther. It's not scripture, but I love this saying of Martin Luther. It applies to a lot of things that are wrong in our lives. Luther said, you cannot prevent a crow from flying right above your head. You cannot even prevent the crow from landing on you once in a while, but you certainly can stop him from building a nest in your hair. And I believe Jesus Christ is inviting us to beat off the crows when they seem to be starting to build the nest. Wave them off. Do what you need to do to get them away. If I see some of you walking down the hall of the church going like this, I'll say, good, they heard the sermon. They're waving off the crows. We have the ability to wave, ladies and gentlemen, and to recognize that these crows of lust have no business building their nest in the hair of God's disciple. What is impossible for men and women to conquer on their own ability is possible for your heavenly Father by His Spirit to work in you to wash it clean. If you will ask Him to forgive you and turn you to new paths by His grace, you can make a new beginning. You can learn day by day to do things through Christ who gives you His magnificent strength to live a new life. Thanks be to God. Father, we come to you in this difficult area, this area where I'm sure I know there are many, many secrets all around this room, secrets we wouldn't want disclosed. Will you meet us in our secrets? Show us that there is a power to invade that secrecy, that shame in which so many find themselves and would never admit it to anyone. Help us, O God. We want to enjoy the beauty of marriage as you created it, the wonderful companionship of a man and a woman together. You made that. We want to enjoy it and magnify it as you make it possible. Come to us where our need is. Help us to be honest. Show us your power. Forgive us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.